Welcome to Career Tools. Today's topic, presentations, voice. Here we go. I know that presentations is in the top 10 list about what people are f- most afraid of, right? Particularly managers and professionals. And, and I'd say well, it's probably in the top. Yeah. It's probably in the top two or three, frankly, for a lot of folks. I mean, I'll just be a pain in the rear right here and say, I don't care if people are afraid of it. It's an important part of any manager's job, any, any professional's job, and most of them stink at it. I don't care if they're afraid of it, if, if they're good at it. I mean, Right. Okay, but we're not like, they're not professional presenters. I mean, I mean, I mean, how really, how important is it to, you know, you're presenting a PowerPoint deck or something like that? Dude, wait, if you're a manager, if you're a professional, if your job requires you to present, then you're a professional presenter. It's simple as that. Mm. I mean, what was it Drucker said? The moment you get promoted from an individual contributor role, your entire ability to be effective depends on your ability to master verbal and written communication. And, you know, we, we use email so much as a broadcast device. Well, what's the verbal equivalent of written broadcast communications, which would be email? And the, the verbal equivalent is presentations. I mean, they happen every week. People sit around tables. I watch managers give presentations. Well, they don't call them presentations, but they're talking to 10 people in a room and they're slouching back in their chair and sliding back and forth, left and right, showing all the clues about that they're unprepared, that they're going to be arrogant and act as if this isn't important when, in fact, their boss and the people they want to communicate to are in the room. It's it's pandemic. Okay, so you just define presentation differently maybe than some people do. But if I'm sitting around a conference table with eight of my peers and my boss and I'm walking through a three-page deck, I got like 10 minutes, you call that a presentation versus yeah, just I briefing do. my phone? Oh, okay. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, then. Yeah. Maybe I am a professional presenter. <laughs> You're right. People are afraid. And so they engage in stupid behaviors to avoid presenting. And what they end up doing is not getting their point across in a way that's helpful. So, yeah, I I know people are afraid of it. You know, manager tools and career tools are not really that focused on emotions. We're much more focused on behaviors. And I know plenty of managers who are fearful of their presentations who do them quite well. Thank you very much. Okay. So how are we going to help people today with being more effective in presentations. Yeah. So there's so much to say here. And, yeah, and I know. this is about yeah, look, being uh, effective in presentations. This be a long cast. We're going to cover everything. Yeah. We're getting ready to roll out the effective interview conference here. in I don't know, sometime this year, um, we're delivering it at the end of June for a beloved client. And I have, I think 30 hours on my calendar between now and the presentation to rehearse it. 15 minute by 15 minute by 15 minute bit. And there's just so much. And, and I tell people all the time, it's, it's about the audience. The problem is people have to go through stages. First, they have to master their content. Then they have to master delivery. And if you've mastered both content and delivery, then you can begin to learn about mastering the audience or focusing on the audience. And if you've mastered content and delivery, you can change those things based on your audience. And the only thing that matters in the room is the audience. It's the only thing. Your content doesn't matter. Your delivery doesn't matter. What matters is what the audience hears. And unfortunately, we're talking about delivery here, which is comes after content. But this is simple stuff. 
once we realize that presenting to a group is inherently destined to fail unless you fundamentally change how you think about communication, then it's going to be much harder. It's going to be nearly impossible to be great. And what we're suggesting is that delivery includes all aspects, verbal, vocal, visual, the words you say, how you say them, your facial expressions, your body language, everything. And one of those things that you have a chance to work with that being able to moderate it and change it does not change, but actually increases, doesn't, doesn't hurt, actually increases your authenticity is your voice. And there are four things you can do, and it's no harder than experimenting with them and thinking about the dramatic impact you're having. And that is you can increase your range of volume, talking louder and talking quieter. You can increase the range that you use of your tone from very, very high to very, very low. You can increase your, the, the range of pitch that you use, and you can also increase or decrease your speed. Volume, tone, pitch, and speed are the the levers you can pull when it comes to speaking. And if you listen to a really good speaker, you'll discover they're not monotone. They're not always at the same pitch. They're not always at the same speed. These are things that they know how to do because they've mastered their content and they've worked with enough audiences to know that audiences respond well to presenters who are over emphasizing things in order to make their points particularly clear when you're speaking to a group. Human beings weren't really made. We weren't made to speak to groups. We we're made to speak to individuals. That's why face-to-face communication is so important. Unfortunately, if you're on stage and you want a shot at being great, and anyone listening to this has a shot at being great, it's just a matter of practice, making it a part of your professional development. It's not, you know, you don't have to go to a class for a month to learn how. And you have to do it over and over again a lot uh, and rehearse. But your voice is a bit like stage makeup. For those of you who have been on stage, I've never acted. But um, if you've ever met an actor backstage on, you know, at a theater and because of the lights and so on, their makeup is very much overdone. And if you have somebody sitting in front of you, sitting quietly while you're standing up and moving around. Uh, or if you're trying to reach 10 different people in a room, even if you're sitting down, if you don't overdo even just a little bit, your tone and your pitch and your volume and your speed, you're going to lose people because people aren't used to staring at one person uh, if they're not in a one-on-one conversation. So this is just one of many levers. Okay. So let's, let's talk about volume. I imagine the first thing that most people think about when they think about voice, their voice and presentations Right, is that they have to be loud enough, right? I mean, clearly, it's it's important to be loud enough to be heard, right, by the audience. There's yeah. not much persuasion going on if they can't hear you. Yeah. But there's more, though, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the beauty of it is, of course, and we'll get into this, is that when you raise your volume, you're naturally at some times going to come back to your natural volume. And that then gives you some some variability. And variability is important. Not variability for variability's sake, but variability increases the chances that the audience's attention will stay on you and they will understand the subtleties of your words rather than just your words. Most effective presenters when they're on stage, not all, but most, act like high eyes in the disc model. 
and high eyes definitely tend to be louder than other people for sure. They also have a greater range of volume in their voice. They can easily be the loudest person in the bar and have 20 people listening to their story about their epic weekend. Now, before I go any further, let me stop. There are high C's who say to themselves, as you know, you engineers, you perfectionists, you software developers who are quiet and reserved and, and uh, maybe pretty, uh, you would think yourselves as intellectual and smart um, and perhaps smarter than a lot of the people around you. Um, you're thinking, well, I would never be that person in the bar. We're not asking you to be that person in the bar. We're asking you to notice that one person in a crowded bar, in part because of their voice, is able to keep 20 people in a crowded bar entertained or forget entertained can keep their attention. If you say to yourself, well, that's not me, that's okay. But then what you're saying is, I wouldn't be able to keep 20 people's attention on me when there are distractions. But folks, what do we know about meetings today? They're nothing but distraction mills. They got cell phones. People are letting people use laptops. We got pagers. I mean, smartphones, uh, you know, we got decks in front of us and, and, I mean, people coming in late and so on. What's interesting, though, is that that high eye can also have a totally quiet, more intimate conversation with one person in the bar, even in a crowded room, even in that bar. And they're simply changing their behavior to be most effective. And, well, I'll tell you, having met Bill Clinton, um, one of the most impressive, if not the most impressive interpersonal communicator I've ever met in my life, he's a high eye. And there's no question when you're talking to him, you think it's him and you, the only two people in the room. Now, look, part of that is eye contact and there's other physical behaviors, but part of it is their ability to vary the volume of their voice, loud when necessary and quieter when they want to either change how you're thinking or because quietness actually causes a person to lean in and feel either they're being a secret is being revealed or that something very important, because generally secrets are thought to be important, is about to, to be shared in a way that makes you feel part of a special circle. Now, look, we could give you a thousand subtleties to this. And by the way, we're going to take this as a first in a series. And we'll take each one of these and have more examples and give you more definitions and so on. But basically, all you have to learn from this cast regarding volume is, in your next presentation, think about raising and lowering the level, the decibel level of your voice when you want to make something important. Sometimes you can raise your voice to make something important. Sometimes you can lower your voice to make something important. Whenever I think about casts like this, I'm reminded of our friend Mike Swinson, who I don't know where he got it. It may be part of his Dale Carnegie training, but he shares with us a great line. He gives the example of the sentence, I didn't say you had an attitude problem. And then he delivers it with different tone or different emphasis or emphasis throughout in such a way that it changes the, the meaning, the difference between, for instance, I didn't say you had an attitude problem, and I didn't say you had an attitude problem, and I didn't say you had an attitude problem. All those things mean something different. Now, that's more about tone, but my point is, 
we take these things for granted in day-to-day speech, but then people get up in front of an audience, they haven't got their content mastered, and suddenly they become fairly monotone, or they're rushing to get through a lot of things. By the way, that's one of the reasons why having 10 slides for a 10-minute presentation is really a bad idea. Saying less and making sure that the things you're saying have the appropriate emphasis uh, to keep people's attention is far better. And leaving people with questions is also often far better. Um, but, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's give a couple of examples of volume. We've given guidance before about starting presentations, right? You stand still. You're in the power position of the room. If you don't know what that is, there's a podcast on that. And allow a complete and utter moment of silence before you begin. We do this at conferences, and there are people who know it's who know it's coming, have never done it before. See me or Danny walk up at the front of the room, stand in the power position in the middle, in the front, and just stand quietly and look at the audience. and And you can hush an audience of fifty or hundred people without even trying. And people know what's happening, but they've never done it, and they actually kind of giggle a little bit. That kind of titters go through the room, like, and you know, I often joke before I welcome the group. I say, "Yeah, we teach this stuff. That's right. It really does work." You know, your first sentence will be welcome, you know, or or something to that effect. And an overview or presentation will probably follow that. But that first bit of silence is important. That's part of the volume of your voice. There's no voice. You're not walking around. You're not chattering. Okay. And when you welcome, you raise your voice a little louder than you would in the rest of the presentation. Right? Not overly done. You're not yelling or anything. But the idea is you've just used volume to capture people's attention. And for the next 30 seconds, their attention is not going to waver from you. And that was strictly a function of volume, okay? You could then, after you've started talking, and maybe you're talking a little bit loud and a little bit fast to send a message of energy in the first minute of your presentation, you could then easily use a quieter voice if you want the room to come back to you. Maybe... After a question, for instance, I often, when people ask me a question, I think it's really good, but it's really poorly phrased and I have to think through the multiple parts of the question and what parts are valid and which parts are not, I stop talking. Now, if somebody has drifted away mentally and then suddenly there's no noise in the room, that gets their attention. People go, what what has changed? Their brains, which are occupied with something else, are aware that what they expect to be happening around the pattern of behavior, the guy at the front of the room talking, some drone in the background of noise, 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 is gone. And their brain tells them, pay attention, something's not as you expect it to be. This is what volume does. Volume says, this is not what you expect it to be. Pay attention. And folks, one of the most important underlying points of this cast is that you're in a constant battle as a presenter with a billion other things that are in the, the, the audience member's mind at any second. And the more plain you are, the less effective you are going to be at fighting for their attention. And if you don't have their attention, you're wasting your breath. They're not hearing you. Well, the, the words are impacting their ears, and they could probably repeat what you said, but they're not hearing you. And so volume is a way to say repeatedly, You're not ready for this. You don't understand. You need to pay attention right now. And I can assure you that if you ever thought about executive attention deficit disorder, it's happening in presentations. I would say 45 seconds 
That's how long people's attention span is listening to a presentation. Much longer, by the way. (laughs) That's not not very long. (laughs) I know, but it's longer in face-to-face because we're biologically connected in a way that a face-to-face one-on-one conversation, we will stay in it longer. But one person to a group, there are too many people in the group and they're always wandering off and coming back mentally. And it's not their fault. It's human nature. And we must be better as presenters. And one thing you can do is use volume to say to them, pay attention, to, to speak to their, if you, if you don't mind my saying so, the lizard brain in them saying, you've wandered off now, but the situation you thought you were in has changed and you need to come back to the situation you're in and reassess it. And then hopefully what you're saying is interesting enough, you can captivate their attention again. Good. Now you talked about um, increasing your range of tone. What do you mean by tone? It's like timber is... Yeah, the, the, the emotion in your voice. Emotion, okay. Tone is what conveys your excitement or your sadness, love, bitterness, whatever. If you want your audience to feel an emotion, you have to model it for them. And the way you model it, because of course they're hearing it inside their head, the way you model it primarily is with your voice. Okay? They have to hear the excitement in your voice before they can feel it. If you say to an audience, I want you to get excited about this, they won't. And what's worse, you've just lost credibility for the next point because they just realized you couldn't do what you said you wanted to do. That's the whole point. We, we, we use our voice and the tone of our voice to make it easy to achieve the objective of, of helping them feel something. And if you're not willing to do it, if you want to stay monotone, if you think, it's a factual case you're making, but you want them to get excited about it. You're nuts if you're not excited. Now, you might say, well, wait, wait a minute, Mark. People around me, they're like me. They want to be won over with logic. Yes, they do. They want to be won over by logic. And they expect you to be excited about the logic. It models the excitement you want them to feel when you can show that your path, your plan, your project is the most logical one. Look, you just can't give your entire presentation a monotone and expect your audience to be excited. You have to be excited first. Part of this is just leadership uh, modeling and, and, and setting an example and so on. Look, think about salespeople. Part of the reason you get excited about the things you never knew you wanted or needed when they start to sell you is their excitement about the product that they're selling. Now, you say, wow, that person's excited. Ask yourself how you know, okay? <laughs> because they're using words. And they're changing modulation, they're changing their tone in such a way that there are behaviors that cause you to infer their emotional attachment or their excitement. Excitement's not a behavior. Excitement is a label we put on a set of behaviors. Yeah, I I hate the people who can do this because like I've gotten home and said, like, why did I buy that? (laughs) It doesn't seem quite as exciting as it did two hours ago. Well, yeah, that's part of that is buyer's remorse. I mean, there's a lot of studies that show that. You're excited in the moment, and then when you get away from that excitement, you realize, oh, I, I feel bad. I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. And then hopefully after a while, the, the, the product or the service or whatever wins you back over because it was a good purchase and the va- you see the value later on. I, I think my problem is just all you persuasive people out there. That just, yeah, that's my problem. Yeah, and we feel bad about it too. We really I bet do. you do. I mean, we, we do. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something. I know a lot of our listeners – are high Cs, more perfectionists, uh, um, n- not overly so, but but a higher percentage than average, in part because, if you'll pardon the expression, folks, some people think that podcasts are an enormous technical hurdle to overcome. 
40% of the people who sit next to me on planes, when I say, do you know what a podcast is? After I tell them I own a management consulting firm, they say no, 40%. Or yeah, but I, you know, I don't, can't do that thing on iTunes. I don't know. Ah, right? So our audience is a little bit more technical here. And technical tends to lean toward logical and rational and factual. That's great. And you may think, I don't want to be that guy in front of the room. It's okay. That, that's fine. Don't come crying to me when you can't get the big executive promotion. Don't come crying to me when they pass you over for somebody in sales for the director job or for the GM job. Okay? Because part of it for general manager and director jobs and so on is that, yes, we have to have somebody who knows customers, right? But there are plenty of technical folks who know customers exceptionally well exceptionally well. They have good relationships on, on both sides, on the on the purchasing side and on the technical side of a given given customer. On the other hand, they also know that to be GM, you have to persuade, you have to inspire, you have to excite. And you might say, well, that's not how I do things. That's okay. That's fine. Just don't complain that when the job requires inspiration and excitement and the willingness to change your tone in order to get your point across, don't complain that you don't get what you want. It's simple. Look, I used to be an engineer. I wasn't a salesperson when I went to West Point at all. And then I realized, wow, it really matters. <laughs> I'm going to get good at this stuff. Look, so much of presentations happen way, 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 way before the presentation itself. Your knowledge, your passion for your subject has to be born of your research. You have to know your stuff. We've said, you know, I think we said it a couple of times, it starts with no, mastering your material. Your excitement can be totally natural, and you can feel comfortable about it if you know your presentation so well that you can turn off that track in your head which says, okay, we have to get ready for this next point. Because you've rehearsed it so many times, and the example I use in the States is the old, I pledge allegiance, everybody knows how to finish that sentence. You don't have to think about the material, and then you can start thinking about, okay, how do I connect with the audience? What do they need from me? Practice, 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 and you'll discover, you'll know your content so well, you can start thinking about what is my audience feeling and what do I want them to feel and what would I have to do in order to help them feel that way. What about pitch? Range of pitch. It's kind of like that, that sing-song part of your voice, right? Some people, it's actually fascinating. People who have it, I'm much more likely to pay attention to, even a high C. Yeah. Now, let me ask you something. Take a minute, though, Mike, and ask yourself, when you say that, you're much more likely why do you say that? What do you think that is? I think it's variety, right? It's, it's, um, again, it's kind of that whole, the monotone thing. It's, it's more pleasant. It, um, it's hard for me to say this. It's emotional. It imparts emotion to one's voice. Okay. Okay. Well, why is emotion important? Hmm. I'm a human being, perhaps, <laughs> believe it or not. I don't know. It connects with me. It resonates with me. Somebody's asking me for my attention, which to me is valuable, right? I mean, there's, there's a thousand yeah. things I could be thinking about, and there has to be some kind of connection. If you want me fully engaged, there has to be some kind of connect connection. And that inflection, it imparts excitement, it imparts emotion, and yeah. it becomes a conversation as opposed to a presentation for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You just stated a, a big part of the human condition. And we, we've used the words a little bit differently, but really 
there are three things that describe the human voice, pitch, tone, and rate. Okay. We call rate speed, but pitch is the up and down. Part of the reason that an automated system, I'm thinking of Siri right now, uh, but plenty of computer voices, the reason they sound funny is because there's no pitch changes. Some people call pitch inflection, um, the highs and lows, the, the squeaks and the rumbles, if you will. The variability of pitch is another thing, the same thing with, with loudness, is something to say, not unpredictability, but rather I am going to attempt to add as much value as I possibly can. And when someone's pitch changes, it sends a message to the listener that this is different and you should pay attention. And because the human brain seeks patterns and looks for similarity simply so that it could put that aside and therefore looks for something different. Look, if you look in the bushes, you're, you, if, if you're a Cro-Magnon man and you're looking in the bushes and you walk by the bushes every day, if you look at the bushes when you come out of your cave, and pardon me, anthropologists, if I've got this wrong, but I'll oversimplify here and say, if you walk out of your cave and you see the bushes, your brain knows how the bushes look. It doesn't really even see the details of the bushes. Your brain, after you've seen the bushes 50 times, simply compares them instantaneously because it's actually a different part of your brain than the part that sees things. It compares it to the pattern your memory has of the bushes. And if you've ever had the sense of looking at something and go, I don't know why, but I don't feel good about what I'm seeing, it's because your brain has compared it to a pattern that it has, and it doesn't like what it sees. So your brain looks for sameness or differentiation all the time. And your brain, of course, is what's processing the speech that's coming in. If the speech stays the same, if there's a monotone pitch, your brain says, this is boring. It's all the same. There's no added value here. And it's much harder when I'm sitting down and you're standing up to understand what you're saying. And what most people do when they get nervous about their, their presentation, about their content, because they're not thinking about their voice is one of the first things that becomes hurtful to their, to their efforts at persuasion. And I know some of you don't like the word presentation, but folks, let's just be clear. All communication is persuasion, whether you admit it or not. Even you high C's, you just have to accept it. Maybe high I's do it in a way you don't like, but the fact is all communication is persuasion. And if it's the same, if they hear the same, the audience does, they tune you out because there's nothing new there. There's nothing different. This is boring. You may be saying something like Eagles MC squared for the first time, but if you say it in a very monotone voice, you lose a healthy percent of the audience simply because their brain says this is boring. They don't even mean to think it. They're not judging you. It may be intellectually somewhat interested in what you have to say, but part of their brain that processes verbal speech patterns says this is boring. And that's yet another voice along with their smartphone vibrating on the desk or in their jeans pocket or whatever that keeps them from focusing and getting all the subtleties that you want. And so therefore you have to increase the pitch. You have to change to go higher, if you will, and then you have to go lower at times in order to make different points. Um, and again, this is the first in a series and we'll give you examples of what points to make lower and what points to make higher in the future. But what right now what we're recommending you do is start thinking about changing your pitch about the highs and lows and see how that works and make it a habit to increase the range 
And by the way, if you increase the volume, the average volume of your voice when you present, even slightly, because your your brain will always be wanting to go back to your natural range, if you're in a small room with only five or 10 people, you will then have increased your pitch because pitch and volume relate to one another in terms of how you make words. What about the person who says, look, I, I, I did that. And frankly, I felt like a flipping fool. Uh, I felt like, yeah. uh, it was uh, Hunger Games? What was the Effie's at the, have you seen the movie? No. No, okay. Well, there, there's a character on the, in the movie that has this like sing song pitch going wildly up and down. I don't know. Some some folks try it and they come back and say, man, I felt like a fool. Now, of course, yeah. you ask the people in the audience, they say, what? I didn't even notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, we, we, we do this all the time. The two examples I use for when I'm at a conference, particularly at our effective communications conference, when we talk about you're going to engage in different behaviors. And if you're, let's assume you're 30 years old, you've been doing this for t- 25 years of your life since you started communicating somewhat effectively you just communicate the way you communicate. Most people don't think about it. And we use two examples. I use the example of people who say to me, what do I do with my hands when I'm standing in front of an audience and I want to present? And so I stand in front of the group with my feet about shoulder width apart and I start talking and I leave my hands at my sides. Which for most people who are thinking about their hands and where their hands are in their body drives them absolutely bonkers. But you ask the audience after they've heard me for about 20 seconds. Now, admittedly, I will have been waving my hands wildly around before then because I'm presenting in a, to a group of people. Nobody says it looks weird at all. It actually feels a little bit weird to me when I first do it, but I've learned it doesn't look weird to the audience. Okay, so that's the first thing. You may feel weird. It doesn't matter. The audience won't think you're weird. The other example I use, which is which is one something somebody can do right now, is go ahead and cross your arms. Uh, hopefully not while you're driving, not while you're mowing your lawn, but if you're if you're doing chores or whatever, you're at the office, um, or you're a passenger in a car, cross your arms right now, and then look down at your arms and ask yourself which arm is over the other one, which hand is tucked underneath the other arm, which hand is propped up against the bicep of the arm, and so on, right over left, left over right, so on. Now but you feel comfortable. Now get in front of a mirror if you can, or if you don't, I'll just, I'll just tell you the answer. Now uncross your arms and recross them in the opposite way. In other words, if you normally do it right over left, do it left over right and put one hand underneath the arm that used to be in front of the bicep or whatever. And then ask yourself, do I feel weird? And the answer is for 99% of people I know, oh my gosh, do I feel Mm -hmm. weird? I couldn't do this. I have to actually think about it to do it. And yet, I promise you folks, no one will know. You could show your spouse. You could cross your arms the weird way in front of your spouse and say, what looks funny to me? And he or she would say, nothing. Your arms are crossed. And you're like, no, no, I'm totally freaking out here. And your spouse is like, okay, but you look fine to me. In the same way that me standing in front of the audience with my arms at my sides, it feels weird if you do it the first time, but it's completely normal. So you just have to practice. The great thing about presenting is it's not complex. It just takes practice. Now, what I will say is attention deficit disorder and and busyness and a lack of belief that presentation skills are important. Nobody's willing to rehearse. That's the great thing. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to have any technical knowledge somebody else has to be a great presenter, folks. You just have to be willing to put in the time. And look, I got to tell you something, as many people who are struggling with work, family balance and so on, not that there's an answer to that, 
that are trying to spend more and more time at work, it's really funny. Oh, but I don't have time to present. Oh, but you, you're terrible at presenting. Okay, well, you're willing to spend more and more time at work. You're not willing to spend it on presenting. Don't complain to me about what you don't get in terms of results from your presentations. It's just practice. And you can increase your pitch and vary your pitch more greatly than you normally would. And not only will nobody notice, but more people be paying attention longer, which is the start of getting your message across. And just like the other things we talked about, another thing you change is the range of speed, how fast you speak, how slowly you speak. Yeah, this is probably the easiest one for most people. I think vo- now volume's probably easier in the people I've coached. On the other hand, I've coached a lot of people who are speaking to microphones and you don't want you know, more than a 10% increase in the actual volume of the voice. I coach people to go up at least 10%, depending upon what their natural voice is. You don't, you want to be very careful about using amplification to get more volume, because if you only amplify to get more volume, that then reduces the chances that you'll get a greater range of pitch and a greater range of tone and so on. But the problem is, of course, the speed at which you speak is a habit, right? And actually, I've discovered that I've gotten better. This is going to sound weird, but I've gotten better in interpersonal communications, one-on-one communications in the last seven years, in part because I'm doing so much presenting. And because of the amount of time I spend presenting, like now and in front of audiences and so on, some of that has lapped over into my one-on-one communication style. And I have a greater range in all of these areas than I normally would simply because of I'm doing it more, um, just literally practicing without even thinking about practicing. People generally speak at a speed which allows them to be understood And it generally reflects their internal understanding of the speed of the world around them. Um, High Ds and Is tend to speak quickly because they're anxious to get to the next thing. High Ss and and Cs tend to speak a little bit more slowly in order to be accurate, in order to be understood, in order to make sure other people have a chance to, to really gather their thoughts. Now, let me ask you, okay, we're talking about presenting. You just, you know, Ds and Is different than Ss and Cs, of course. So, when it comes to presenting, I'm not talking about every situation, when it comes to presenting, what's better on, on the slower side so f- folks can understand better or on the faster side to impart some kind of energy? Faster. Oh, faster. it's just, it's, okay. it's just no question. I mean, if it's slower, particularly if it's slower than normal communication, you are fighting the attention deficit thing enormously. And remember something now. They're sitting down. Their heart rate is lower than yours. If you slow down, and you're not interjecting energy into the room, and we'll talk about that in a whole series of casts over the years to come, it is not humanly natural to sit down when another person is speaking to a group that you're in and have that person speak in conversational tone and to be able to follow them. In one-on-one, you can follow conversational tone, but no, you have to interject more energy because the difference in energy between you and them is so stark because you're standing up and they're sitting down because they're sedentary and because you're not. And to be clear, that's true even if you're talking to, say you're in a technical organization and you're talking to a group of high Cs. In absolutely. that case, it would oh, still absolutely. be better to be if you're t- Yeah, if you're talking to a group, by definition, your speed needs to increase. Otherwise, because they're not in a one-on-one conversation and there is no shame in disappearing from the conversation, there's no shame in checking out because there are so many other people in the room, they do so. If I'm in a one-on-one with you, I focus on you and you know when I'm gone, but not in a group. 
And so other people bring all their stuff, all their baggage to the table. They sit in a room and they think about their spouse and their kids and their deliverables and, and, and so on. And whether they agree with you in general and principle on everything or not. So consequently, you have to do something. We have to do something to keep their attention. Otherwise, they'll wander off. And it's really not their fault. If you just speak in your normal voice and you wonder why you can't keep people's attention, you know, you can get away with blaming them. Of course, you're responsible, but you can blame them because they're literally responding to other stimuli, which you're not aware of. And you would be aware of them and ask questions about them if it was one-on-one. But at any given moment, in any given audience, at least one person is completely and utterly checked out. Now, imagine you were in a one-on-one conversation, and I told you, in any one-on-one conversation, one person is always completely checked out. You'd say, no, that's not true. That's not true. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. And the other piece that goes to this, Mike, is the whole thing of, well, I don't want to become somebody I'm not. Folks, you can't, right? Those of you who are high Cs or high Ss, oh, I wouldn't want to be Mark. He's a little salesy. That's not good, right? You couldn't do it. I could pay you $25,000, and you couldn't do it for more than 30 seconds. Because the pattern is so far removed from where you normally are in communication, you couldn't do it. It would be way too hard. It would be a stupid caricature. Yeah. We don't want you to become inauthentic. We want you to practice becoming an excellent presenter. And there are certain behaviors that excellent presenters use, like increasing volume, tone, pitch, and speed. Instead of allowing your natural speech patterns, your autonomic systems, to control the speed at which you're speaking, what speakers do is make choices to control the speed at which they're speaking. They control it themselves. Speak more quickly when you want to convey passion and enthusiasm. Speak more slowly when you want to explain a key point or when you've just been speaking fast and now you're changing the point you're making. It's that simple. And by the way, something else. Some of you, if you're nervous, and you have a 15-minute presentation, you wonder why you finish in 10 minutes. It's because the nerves cause you to speed up. And that's okay. And we're still recommending you naturally try to speed up a little bit when you're presenting to a group. Again, because they're always wandering off. And if you're giving them more words faster than they're used to getting words, they will tend to stay attuned because they don't want to miss the next few words. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. And guys, we're just scratching the surface here. But we wanted to put out there the basics, which are volume, tone, pitch, and speed. Look, when it comes to your voice and presentation, folks, it's all about variety. The more range you have in each of these key areas, the more interesting your audience will find you. And that means the more likely they are to hear what you want them to hear in order to be persuaded about what you're trying to persuade them about. That's the way you do it, dude. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You bet. All right, we'll see you. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long.